Welcome to the Arsenal Democracy, a podcast from Hudson Institute. I'm your host, Marshall Kozlov. Today's guest is Hudson Institute's Peter Rao, a senior fellow and director of the Center on Europe and Eurasia. Today also marks the first GOP presidential primary debate of the 2024 cycle. And as in 2015, foreign policy issues from the U.S.'s Ukraine policy to China and Mexico and Central America are sure to be at the forefront of candidates' minds. Peter assisted former President George W. Bush with his memoir Decision Points and has advised multiple presidential candidates on foreign policy issues across campaign cycles. He's the perfect guest to unpack the context and issues that are sure to arise tonight, especially Ukraine. Because here, Russia, uh, sensing that America was declining, that the distribution of power in the international system was shifting, and that Russia and China now had an opportunity to revise the system, America was no longer so far ahead, went for broke in Ukraine under the assumption that they could take Kyiv in three days. The Ukrainians fought tenaciously, gave us an opportunity to catch up which are, with our own policy. We initially thought that the Ukrainians would fall. But those assistance packages, without shedding any American blood, have managed to degrade one of our two major adversaries. 200,000 Russian casualties, uh, tens of thousands of deads. The entire conventional weapons arsenal that the Russians have has been diminished substantially. And so my argument would be in a world where we do have enemies and those who want to take down the United States. And Vladimir Putin, I would say, is certainly one of the major enemies that we face in the international arena. We have an opportunity to uh, come out on top. And I think that could do a lot to help reinvigorate America's confidence in itself. We also discussed NATO, how to advance the national interest, the Biden administration's performance, and much, much more. First and most important question, what would you say is the biggest difference between the Republican Party of 2023 and the Republican Party of 2015 when it comes to foreign policy issues? I think democracy promotion was still front and center and accepted and a prioritized theme in the Republican Party back then. Today, though, I think when a lot of Republican voters look back, they see Iraq as a borderline satrapy of Iran, Libya as a, a cancerous wound that's destabilizing Europe. Uh, they see Iraq and Afghanistan, Afghanistan in particular now with the withdrawal being bungled last year as a Taliban stronghold. And so uh, intermittently, too, in Egypt, I would add the Muslim Brotherhood uh, took over when the U.S. in a moral panic ditched Hosni Mubarak. Uh, now there's President Sisi in charge. But in each of these examples, I think the sense has crept into the GOP that democracy promotion might have overextended us. And instead, we need a national interest-based uh, approach that more narrowly and carefully defines American interests and then uh, lays out the ways in which we – meet those national interests. And I still think that there is, um, and this perhaps is an area of continuity, an appreciation that there are allies in the world and there are enemies, and uh, we need to contain those enemies and push them back. So that's, I think, a, a, a major difference. Democracy promotion is somewhat out. National interest-based approach uh, is in. And then perhaps if I could just add, because so much has changed over those years, clearly back in uh, 2015, there was still in the pre-Trump era, if we can call it that, a relatively strong contingent in the GOP led by business interests that wanted 
detente outreach rapprochement with the Chinese. And I think today the party has turned a lot more hawkish on China. I'd love to hear you offer any prospective candidate some guidance on how they should think through the national interest question. Because in the categories you were talking about, everything from China to Taiwan, um, you obviously have Afghanistan and Iraq. I think there is a way that we could have chosen much of the same policy approaches, but at the same time, use national interest language to get there. So you didn't have to make a democracy promotion uh, case for getting involved in Afghanistan and Iraq for the first time. So how would you really differentiate the national interest approach from the democracy approach one? I think that's true. I don't think our interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq were driven by democracy promotion theories. There were some who clearly wanted to make the world safe for democracy. They wanted to intervene in Iraq to try to turn it into an example of a a Muslim democracy in particular in the heart of the Middle East. The interventions themselves that were driven by core national security and defense rationales, they over time to justify main, remaining in those countries, I think, transitioned to and morphed into more democracy type of arguments. But uh, the way I would distinguish between, um, let's call it maybe the neoconservative democracy promotion worldview and the more narrowly tailored national interest worldview is that the national interest worldview defines what our national interests are and then explains those in self-interested ways, jobs, 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 for example. And then why certain policies are necessary to achieve those national interests and why others um, might not work. So maybe just very concretely, since that was a bit of an abstraction, to apply it to the modern-day war in Ukraine. Uh, In a way, ironically, the democracy promotion agenda is back in the form of President Biden, who likes to talk about the contrast between authoritarian and democratic powers. In particular, in that war, he gave a major address in Warsaw and Poland on the anniversary of the war, where he ended with the kind of clarion call to freedom will be victorious over tyranny, et cetera, et cetera. But I think in the context of that war, if uh, the presidential candidates go out and message the public and primary voters that they are there to bring democracy to Ukraine, they're likely only to attract a certain percentage of GOP primary voters. But I think if they make the argument that uh, Russia is a near-peer adversaries, a peer adversary in certain domains, and that for pennies on the dollars, you're degrading the conventional force of one of America's two major adversaries in the world, that makes sense. I mean, after all, we do spend $800 billion or so each year in Uh, defense spending. And every year, Congress gets together to um, authorize and appropriate around that amount of money. So the political will for that sort of spending is there for defense. It's recognized as necessary. We've, to date, in 18 months, delivered about $60 or so in assistance to the Ukrainians. And for that, you've taken out thousands of Russian tanks. That sort of frame, I think, can actually be relatively convincing to your average voter. I'll ask this question on two levels. So first question, how essential do you think foreign policy debates are to the 2024 Republican primary in the context of in 2015, the debate over the wisdom of the Iraq war was obviously very central to then candidate Trump's case against Jeb Bush. Obviously his president, his, his brother being uh, president George W. Bush, you also had the use of ISIS as a cudgel against the Obama administration. How central is foreign policy this time around? I think it's important and it's a dividing line of sorts, but I don't think it's 
as essential as maybe those in our profession might make it out to be. And quite frankly, I don't think it was that essential in 2015, 2016 either. Here I am living and breathing because I work mostly on Europe issues, uh, the war in Ukraine. And when I speak to pollsters about where it ranks, where it racks and stacks and the hierarchy of primary voters' interest, it usually doesn't crack the top three or four. Um, in fact, most foreign policy questions don't. If you recall that spy balloon that the Chinese sent across continental America a few months ago, earlier this year, that for a brief period allowed the China question to spike way up to the front. It was a made-for-TV sort of moment. But even China isn't at the top of uh, most polling questions. So I think it matters. Foreign policy is still mostly an elite-driven um, enterprise. The voters look to the to the president and to leaders in Congress to set the tone and to articulate um, what foreign policy should be and why it's important to them. And then they have instincts. I mean, they recognize when a war is going south or when a foreign policy isn't working, uh, either a military conflict in the case of, say, Vietnam or a general um, engagement strategy with China over the decades that's brought them into kind of the Western globalized system, the World Trade Organization, et cetera. There's a basic instinct that things aren't working, and then I think the public can revolt um, based on some foreign policy questions. But the debate and the feel in the country is going to be mostly driven by a lot of domestic policy questions. And I'm curious, and I could guess where you're going to go with this. What would your main piece of advice be for any candidate? You started off with the point around national interest. So what it may be, be that any policies you're articulating on the stage need to be framed in that context. Like, what's your piece of advice to them? Just in the context of a debate, I worked for President Bush um, in his post-presidency and the way he would describe these presidential debates is there are opportunities to ruin your candidacy, but rarely are they a silver bullet to put yourselves you know, in first position or to pass everyone. Even thinking back to that famous Chris Christie-Marco Rubio debate moment um, in the last uh, – I think it was 2016 cycle, that proved pretty damaging to Senator Rubio. I think most observers would agree on that, but it didn't necessarily propel Chris Christie to the nomination. And so – um, just to remain steady, to be authentic, and to uh, try to connect with voters. Um, and my my piece of advice would be to frame your policy positions in a way that uh, Americans understand will connect with the interests of the country. And, and perhaps overshadowing all this is a bit of an exhaustion in the country. I, I don't agree with the trope of forever wars, but I do think that uh, a lot of Americans think we've taken it on the chin for a few decades. And so – uh, if you're going to articulate why the American public needs to make a sacrifice or remain engaged abroad, it has to be connected to why that's in the best interest uh, of the country. Yeah, and something I'm curious about is how does President Trump's foreign policy record and legacy play into this? Yeah, it's a bit paradoxical because he is both incumbent and insurgent. Uh, in a way, he's the incumbent because it's his party. He won in 2016, was president for four years. He's the most recent president, uh, just as the Democratic Party is probably Barack Obama's party in a way. Uh, yet here he is running very much so a 2016 campaign as an outsider taking on uh, Washington, which um, is quite the tap dance to pull off, but he seems to have pulled it off thus far. It seems clear that this cycle is much more of a 2016 cycle than a 2012 cycle, meaning it's much more of an, of an anti-Washington um, cycle than it was um, before that. And so it's smart to uh, ask, as you did in the opening, about what distinguishes the GOP today from 2015, because I think between the Romney and Trump nominations, there was a clear 
break or perhaps there was the straw that broke the camel's back in those four years and the party really went in a new direction. So it is in a lot of way President Trump's party and uh, perhaps um, in foreign policy domain, my plea for a national interest-based foreign policy is in a way uh, an endorsement of part of President Trump's foreign policy but also a subtle critique of the realists who have, I think, redefined realism as restraint, um, which it almost always calls for when it's now, I think, articulated. And so I would say uh, America has to remain engaged and aggressive abroad. That's in our national interest. Uh, in decades past, great thinkers like Morgenthau or Waltz might have de might have defined the, what I'm calling a national interest approach as realism. But in our common parlance, realism has become, I think, synonymous with restraint. And that I don't think is necessarily in our best interest. If any debates over Trump's legacy break out on stage, they're going to be centered around domestic policy and domestic political decisions. Do you think there are any, let's say, amounts of discord on various decisions Trump made on the foreign policy side of things? So everything from, I mean, obviously not the uh, Jerusalem embassy move, but China policy, all those other different categories. There might be some differences, I think, in um, in execution. If there's a criticism of of Donald Trump, it's probably uh, including amongst the candidates, and I suspect this is how it might be presented during the debate. Although who knows? But I, I think it would be that he got the general foreign policy vector correct. His instincts on say uh, decades of China policy being off were correct. Uh, his instincts on moving the embassy to Jerusalem and not necessarily launching a new Middle East war as a result, which was kind of predicted by some at the time, were correct. And so time and again, I think he's had decent instincts on some issues. But I think the actual execution and implementation of his foreign policy views lacked at, at times and weren't weren't really up to snuff or up to what one would like. So the president gives the big ideas and then you've got to stay on them doggedly and push, push, push. And at times, I think Trump uh, was, I think, distracted or moved on or relitigate old decisions. Um, there was an anecdote I read recently of um, the Russian ambassador in Washington um, and the enormous frustrations he would have because um, apparently the Russians and the Americans would say on file XYZ, have some sort of arrangement or cut a deal of some sort. But then the next week, the president would want to revisit that deal or talk about it once again. And after a while, it was almost extraordinarily frustrating because perhaps that was a, a, a negotiating technique by Trump. But in the end, it was, it was hard to actually move forward. And so that could be a point of critique. I don't, I don't see anybody uh, on the stage saying that Trump was too hawkish on China. It's more, did he actually execute on it? Um, was he actually pushing aggressively enough? He said that the southern border needed to be secure, and, and they would mostly agree that he was right on immigration. But look, that's still a gaping wound. That is the southern border, that sort of a thing. You know, speaking of Trump's vector, where do Republican politicians find themselves when it comes to the broad strokes of Biden's foreign policy? Because in some ways, it's awkward. Um, on the one hand, you obviously have a lot of um, engagement um, on Ukraine. You also though, have the pullout from Afghanistan, which was disastrous, obviously, but a pullout broadly that um, President Trump um, was pursuing during his administration. You also have the domestic manufacturing um, and focus on jobs debate, China policy continuance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What would you kind of say is the broad narrative of how they should think of Biden's presidency? I think they'll probably outflank President Biden on a lot of these issues. Everyone's welcomed some of the executive orders he's pursued on China policy, for example, but the critique would be that it's 
It's still too weak. It's still beholden to some interests, and there's more that needs to be done. On Afghanistan, we were told the adults are back in charge, and I think the candidates will say um, this was bungled. It was poorly executed. Um, the fact that deterrence failed over Ukraine and Russia, I think, is a point of critique that you'll hear from a lot of the candidates. And so while some might be careful in how they address Trump, I think they'll be pretty tough on President Biden. But, you know, because President Trump won't be there, it's going to be a unique dynamic. He so quickly pushed into first place in the polls in 2016 that he was always at the center of the stage. And he's a big, formidable man, like 6'3 or something like that. So everything always revolved around him. Uh, and with him not present, uh, it'll be interesting to see what actually occupies center stage. Will it be President Biden? I'm sure in part. Will it be President Trump, whom they all need to catch, perhaps? Will it be another candidate in the flesh? Because it's easier to have an actual debate, a soliloquy, a, a kind of back and forth with somebody who's who's there present. Hard to say. That'll be kind of a unique dynamic here. I want to get kind of meta because I liked your description of the vibe of this 2024 election being very anti-establishment. Like, What is the purpose of foreign policy expertise or you know institutions like Hudson Institute during a moment like that? How do you both navigate the need to acknowledge the political dynamic, but also not lean too far away from what your actual day job is? I do think it's a moment in the sun for think tanks because everyone has seen the decline in American news media, that a lot of these newsrooms have shed some of their veteran reporters is no secret to anyone who's consuming the press. And so there is, I think, a hunger for expertise, a hunger for knowledge. In addition to that, there is, thanks in part to the information revolution, a lot more opportunities to publish. But with that also comes a lot of disinformation and new platforms, which are less trustworthy than perhaps what we had in decades past. And so just putting out basic facts, uh, framing how one should think about these issues is valuable to producers, reporters, but also to candidates and campaigns. And I think that is a role that a, an institute like Hudson can play. We obviously don't uh, engage in direct politicking, but uh, there's a difference between politicking and I think providing factual knowledge, um, putting out fact sheets, et cetera, that people can lean on um, for themselves. And I, I've seen some uh, interest in that over the past several months, and I expect it to pick up as time goes on. There are a variety of uh, Twitter-centric debates within the foreign policy community that would include everything from are we focusing too much on Europe to the exclusion of American interests in Asia to the degree to which those debates are real and, and substantive. Do you see them playing up at the political level or are they more just like below board in terms of the focus of candidates and their and their teams especially? Well, they're taking place these debates at the expert level, but uh, in the end I think they they are a tacit recognition of what seems to be the historical pattern that the party out of power, which is to say out of the White House, even if one controls a chamber or two of Congress or the Supreme Court, the party not in power uh, tends to be in the wilderness and having debates about the future direction of the country. Whoever then takes the White House historically tends to set what is then Republican or Democratic foreign policy. And if we go back pretty much to the post-war era, that's almost always been true. Uh, certainly was true with um, President Eisenhower taking power. I'd argue that um, President Nixon reshaped then American foreign policy. Ford, perhaps a little bit less so. Reagan certainly did. 
George W. Bush comes to comes into power and 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 he reshapes yet again what foreign policy is, and then of course Donald Trump really setting what is kind of today's foreign policy. But the next president will have an opportunity to guide American foreign policy yet again for the Republican Party if it's a Republican. Uh, the cycle. If not, this internecine battle will continue. And it may be that it even continues under a Republican president. But generally, I think the president is given control of the levers or takes control of the levers and is able to set policy. Moreover, a lot of the people who are holding these debates will go into a Republican administration. And so in a way, while they can leak to the press and uh, engage in other acts of subterfuge or in the bureaucratic interagency process, they're silenced in terms of their public megaphone. And so you'd have the president really, I think, um, setting the tone and 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 moving forward. Let's uh, in this bigger last section kind of go issue by issue and kind of understand um, how candidates should think about it from from your perspective. So you're obviously leading efforts on on Europe here at Hudson. This is kind of a broad question, but can you just sort of frame like what is the top line takeaway that a Republican candidate and their staff should take away when they're approaching debates and issues around the future of Europe and America's role in it? Well, more broadly, I would say that my parents' generation experienced defeat in Vietnam, and it was a searing defeat with thousands of dead Americans. But despite taking it on the chin and being bloodied then, 15 years later, they experienced victory in the Cold War which I think uh, did a lot to reanimate the American soul to give us confidence in ourselves. My generation, and I'm 40, uh, has done nothing but suffer one setback after another, pretty much as far back as I can remember. So coming out of college, well, in college, I experienced 9-11, which was an awful, tragic, disastrous event in American history. Subsequently, we had the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Afghanistan, I think we can say safely, has gone down to defeat. Iraq is still open for debate, but uh, Iran's influence in there is pretty significant. We had financial crises, immigration waves, the rise of polarization. One, I think, establishment candidate after another of late has gone down in huge upsets. Hillary Clinton went down to Barack Obama despite being the enormous favorite in the 06, 07, 08 primary. And then of course in 2015, 2016, Donald Trump came onto the scene. In Europe right now, in the war between Russia and Ukraine, we have an enormous opportunity to reverse that trend. Because here Russia, uh, sensing that America was declining, that the distribution of power in the international system was shifting, and that Russia and China now had an opportunity to revise the system, America was no longer so far ahead, went for broke in Ukraine under the assumption that they could take Kyiv in three days. The Ukrainians fought tenaciously, gave us an opportunity to catch up which are, with our own policy. We initially thought that the Ukrainians would fall, so we have been belated and slow in the assistance packages we've sent them. But those assistance packages, without shedding any American blood, have managed to degrade one of our two major adversaries. 200,000 Russian casualties, uh, tens of thousands of deads, the entire conventional weapons arsenal that the Russians have has been diminished substantially. And so my argument would be, in a world where we do have enemies and those who want to take down the United States. And Vladimir Putin, I would say, is certainly one of the major enemies that we face in the international arena. We have an opportunity without shedding any American blood to uh, come out on top. And I think that could do a lot to help reinvigorate America's confidence in itself. To everything you just said, though, I'd like to get your understanding of why when it comes to polls in favor of supporting um, the current U.S. engagement in Ukraine, we, we, that support is on the decline. Like, what's your understanding of that fact? 
Well, for one, I think a lot of the polling depends on how questions are framed and asked. And I've seen wild shifts in uh, polling data depending upon how really these questions are posed to the public, which isn't to say I don't agree that there has been some degradation and decline in public support, in particular amongst Republicans for, for Ukraine. But I would say two things. One is name any other issue uh, that's so closely associated with the president and show me where the Republicans have 40 to 50 percent support for um, what people presume is a Biden administration uh, policy on tax policy, on immigration policy. I'd venture, although I haven't looked at the polling, supports at like 5 percent or 10 percent amongst Republicans, um, even though – and I would add this caveat to it. Not a lot of Republicans on Capitol Hill are all that satisfied with the president's Ukraine policy, which takes me to my second uh, the second point, and that is President Biden's strategy for the war has been uh, almost like a step-stair approach to the conflict, which is at regular intervals um, when the Ukrainians have been on the defensive or struggled to make gains, they have slowly um, but surely stepped up support. Um, they've allowed the Russians to deter big, major, significant weapons packages for fear of escalation to the nuclear level, level, which for reasons we could talk about, I've considered to be a bluff by the Russians. But setting that aside, the point is, I think, had we gone in big and early in support of the Ukrainians, we would have seized on the large Republican support for Ukraine and been able to maintain that longer. The fact that the Biden team hemmed and hawed for months over certain weapon systems for fear of escalation, which once they've been introduced on the battlefield have not led to the escalation that was feared, has um, has taxed, I think, Americans' patience um, and taxed American support for uh, the war. So drawing it out over time uh, in a way in democratic systems, which are also open to debate and manipulation and can grow exhausted quicker than some authoritarian dict dictatorial type systems, it's been tough to maintain support. However, you know, the Russians have weaknesses too on that count because while Putin does not have to go to, to – he does have to go to elections, but while he can, he can manipulate those elections and organize them in his favor, when that system ruptures, it isn't that there's an election where the public decides we're going with President Obama over Hillary Clinton or we're going with President Trump over Jeb Bush. It ends up being Yevgeny Prigozhin marching on Moscow, um, which, is, which is the way that it shows that that system's under stress. So I would say one is the way that the Biden team has fought the war, has supported the Ukrainians, has, has made it tough to maintain support. And the second is that I think uh, there probably is more support than, than, uh, than people appreciate, uh, in particular given that this is a, a Democratic administration that's in charge. Yeah, so I'd, I'd love to hear more from you about why you think the nuclear saber rattling is a bluff, but quick pause on that to ask you one quick follow-up. I'd love for you to contextualize the nuclear saber rattling in the context of our opening conversation about national interest, because it seems to me we're in an awkward political dynamic where if we're going to frame issues in terms of the national interest, and that's just the general way that will drive policy, if you would all have a situation where our adversaries can say, well, okay, if you do X, Y, and Z, you invoke the threat of nuclear war. 
by definition, it seems that across these issues, whether it's a Taiwan crisis, a potential conflict in Europe um, between NATO and Russia, nuclear war is always going to always be less in the nuclear interest than um, the specifics of the policy that could potentially lead to the escalatory issue there. So how do you advise candidates who are trying to think through this natural interest dynamic handle the nuclear Trump question? And I mean, Trump in the sense of the word, not the president. This cuts multiple ways. The Ukrainians gave up their nuclear weapons uh, in, in the mid-1990s, codified through what was called the Budapest Memorandum. And in return, the US, the UK, uh, and Russia made loose promises in that memorandum for Ukraine to be part of a peaceful order in Europe. Uh, if Ukraine, which is now being pulverized, is defeated over time, um, or if the West shows that it will not provide certain weapon, weapons packages to Ukraine because the Russians are engaging in nuclear saber rattling, the lesson for Ukraine, but also third countries around the world is, well, we should get our own nuclear weapons because American uh, loose guarantees are worth uh, little more than the paper they're written on. On top of that, I would add the context that Iran is hurtling towards a nuclear weapon and uh, the JCPOA has, uh, has basically failed. And what are we doing? We're rewarding the Iranians for hostage taking by paying out billions of dollars. So apparently the price to pay for going for nuclear weapons isn't all that great either. I don't think it's in the national interest for there to be a nuclear weapons cascade around the world and for third countries to decide from the Gulf to, to Asia, to Northeast Asia, for example. To, uh, the only way to really secure yourselves is to have, um, to have a nuclear weapon. So that's, that's a major point that's often overlooked. Also, the Russians have inverted the nuclear weapons um, paradigm. They're generally considered defensive weapons, but they're using them offensively um, to deter the US and Ukraine. And again, if other countries around the world see this and realize, well, the U.S. is willing not to provide Ukraine with certain weapons because of the Russian nuclear weapons threats, then these things really do work in cowing the Americans. So maybe it's a way for us to, to, to get them ourselves and to blackmail um, the United States. So those, I think, are key points that one shouldn't forget that this has you know, implications for international proliferation and nonproliferation beyond just the country of um, – of Ukraine and for Ukraine, Ukraine itself. So the, I think that's that's a key that's a key point. Just to add to that, the United States has, um, together with its NATO allies and all that coalition, it's built the Ukraine Defense Contract Group, a GDP that's something like twenty times larger or forty times that forty trillion to about two trillion than Russia. The Russians want to isolate Ukraine in a one-on-one -on -one matchup. They don't want to bring in. NATO. And uh, by isolating uh, Ukraine, Putin thinks he can win. He can barely take places like Bakhmut before losing them. I don't think he wants to risk a larger war with the West. Um, and for that reason, um, I, I'd, I'd be shocking to me if the Russians actually are inclined to start something with NATO that would be ruinous to them. The West has signaled that the use of a nuclear weapon would be crossing a certain red line. And uh, the Russians understand that. So I think the key takeaway then for a candidate, staff, team, et cetera, would be that you continue to assume that – not assume in a light-minded sense, obviously, but you continue to assume that nuclear weapons are defensive rather than offensive weapons. And that should shape how we consider nuclear or escalatory threats when it comes to potential crises, whether in Europe or Asia. We'd like nuclear weapons to be considered defensive weapons for sure. 
And the Russians have inverted that paradigm and used it to try and push around the West. And I think the lessons for, for third countries are horrendous if that's allowed to take place. So then the point then is we should avoid policy choices that justify or back up the idea that it's an effective political strategy to saber rattle, rattle in the offensive sense, correct? Yeah, I think that's right. The major threshold that was crossed was Russia going into Ukraine. Um, once that took place and Ukraine decided to fight back doggedly, the die was cast um, that Putin would try to use whatever is at his disposal to isolate the Ukrainians, push the West away from the conflict, try to uh, intercept in a way, not physically, but um, through political machinations like this, Western shipments to the Ukrainians. And that that interdiction effort means trying to frighten the West into backing down. So uh, that then raises the stakes. If the US and the West allow Putin to make that argument, I think it would be problematic for the nuclear nonproliferation regime. Zooming out, but still involving Ukraine, obviously, how should we understand the GOP and just broadly the broader conservative movement's um, opinion of NATO and U.S. engagement in Europe broadly? This was obviously another one of those orthodoxy-breaking points that President Trump, then-candidate Trump, raised in the 2015 primary in terms of NATO um, defense, GDP spending, et cetera. How should we understand how that issue could play out going into 2024? Well, it will play out through the theme of burden sharing, which I think is a good one, and keeping the pressure on the Europeans to rearm, I think, is important and just and correct and part of American grand strategy. When Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, visited Congress for an address to a joint session, he received a standing ovation from both sides of the aisle. I think that NATO has been a successful alliance and most Americans view it as such, but it's been tilted too much towards the United States of late. And um, I think the war in Ukraine is nudging and pushing and we should cajole further through through our own politics, the Europeans, into spending more. Some parts of Europe, since uh, Europe itself isn't really something to speak of, some parts of Europe, um, like the Poles, the Baltic states, have picked up their defense spending. Others, like the Germans, uh, continue to be laggards. But here I also would distinguish between the war and um, NATO's rearmament. You know, NATO is not involved in the war. Um, in fact, it's been explicitly kept out of the war. Instead, there's been an ad hoc coalition outside of NATO that's been engaged in Ukraine. And there, in that ad hoc coalition, you know, the U.S. is somewhere like 12th or 15th when it comes to per capita spending support for Ukraine. So the other Europeans have stepped up. Some have not as much as the United States, France, and Germany come to mind, but Europe writ large is spending more. And then secondly, when it comes to rearmament and rebuilding the deterrent in Europe so that Europe can take up more of its own defense, I think um, we again need to continue keeping the pressure on the Europeans to do more. And I think that's something that we should articulate at the debate. And it's only a, a way of encouraging Europe to do more. The Biden approach of bear hugging the Europeans and basically whispering into the ears that everything was the fault of Donald Trump, I think allowed the Europeans to exhale, to relax, and basically decide that whatever friction there was in the transatlantic relationship was owing to the last occupant of the White House. That's not a way to get introspection and reform out of the Europeans. And so I think some critique is in order 
on support for the war itself, the Europeans have done a decent job. And when it comes to rearmament, parts of Europe have done well. Others need to, I think, continue to improve. Historically, European and American defense spending have moved together. So when American defense spending has gone up, so has Europe's. When the American has paid out its peace dividend, so has Europe. And uh, as Europe, as the United States uh, looks at European defense spending, if it's taking a lead, I think Europe will follow. And uh, taking a step out of Europe, I'd love to hear you, because you've done some writing on this um, with our colleague, Michael Duran. Where does the Middle East, if at all, play into 2024 Republican policy debates or dynamics in general? I mean, the two major or three, two or three major components of the Middle East that can rise to the level of sort of GOP primary debate. One is energy, natural resources. I mean, this is why the Gulf has always mattered. Um, as a derivative of that, there are also enormous sovereign wealth funds that matter in the Gulf, which China has sought to tap into. So hundreds of billions of dollars that are outside of American and European control. It's the only major pot of money in the world that isn't really um, outside of kind of East Asia um, that isn't available to the Chinese, that's European and American, I should say. So there's an attraction there for the Chinese and then the, the energy resources in addition to that. And then secondly, the security of Israel will matter because it's for always mattered to the United States and and will continue to matter. And then, you know, there is the wild card of, um, of ISIS, of Al-Qaeda, significant degradations of those organizations, in particular Al-Qaeda, but you're one terrorist attack away from these organizations, I think, playing a major part in the news. So, uh, you know, if America is going to pull back from that region of the world, because in general, there is a desire for the U.S. to assess its commitments, or I should say assess its footprint, then we'll have to lean more heavily on our regional allies, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, the Emirates, et cetera, to help pick up the slack. And I think that is part of the flavor of the debate that will be ongoing as well. And uh, continuing East China, you pointed out that there have been a couple, you know, kind of promising executive orders from the Biden administration, but clearly stated that that was not enough in the various categories. Like, where does that come into play? Yeah, I think China will will be the kind of the the looming big foreign policy question because it's the one peer competitor. If I mentioned that NATO has a GDP that far outstrips Russia's, the Chinese are basically on par with the United States or close to it. Owing to labor costs, they probably get more bang for their buck in some of their spending as well. So I would say that China is considered the big looming question, the Taiwan defense issue, obviously the issue du jour outside of Russia, Ukraine, and the world today. And China policy and Ukraine are two of the three big issues that are going to be raised if any of them are raised at the debate. Yeah, and last but not least from a regional perspective, it seems like Mexico – um, yeah. And drug cartels particularly have been slowly rising to the surface, especially where you'd probably start to see a little bit of disagreement when you get into the um, exactness of how that policy would play out. Talk about Mexico. Well, that's the third big issue that I think will get raised is Latin America and our own neighborhood, which is the issue that most dramatically and immediately is impacting Americans owing to the scourge of fentanyl and the drug epidemic. But I was just talking to a DEA agent over the weekend, and he was in, in Quito, just as one of the leading presidential candidates is assassinated. That's the second or third major assassination in Ecuador in a short period of time as they gear up for presidential elections. The, the cartels and organized crime and non-state armed groups in Central and Latin America are an enormous security problem for the US. And I imagine that this issue will be at the top of voters' minds 
um, when it comes to foreign policy because when foreign policy matters most in American domestic politics, it's when foreign and domestic policy are interlaced or intertwined. And in the case of Mexico, fentanyl, drugs, the China-Mexico axis, um, the precursor chemicals coming to Mexico and then being trafficked across the border is the big issue for so many families. So I want to close by going back to something you said that I thought was particularly helpful from a framework perspective. You pointed out at a generational level, um, especially um, you're in my cohort, just the feeling of of decline. On the one hand, the kind of conventional wisdom response to that decline is to invoke the legacy of Ronald Reagan and to talk about how it could be morning in America. Again, that's very much that um, Mitt Romney's America's comeback team 2012 aesthetic. Um, at the same time, though, unlike in the 1980s, it seems as if the feelings of decline and limit are now bipartisan. It's not merely just on the left you have that feeling, it's also on the right you have that feeling as well too. How would you just broadly think candidates, thinkers, policymakers should navigate the dynamic around the tangible feeling of decline while also acknowledging that this isn't as simple as invoking imagery from the 1980s? Yeah, the 80s are a long time ago now, and um, while I think Reagan is clearly in the pantheon of American presidents and one of the true greats for the Republican Party, the eras have, I think, certain comparisons, but you know, the old adage, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. There are similarities in that we're entering a new period of superpower competition between China and the U.S. and um, in, in this era, and it was China, the U.S. and the Soviet Union then. Uh, you know, what worries me is I don't think that um, the generation perhaps behind me, uh, and I might be straddle, straddling the baby boomers or whatever's above me and this new generation exiting college, even believe in uh, American exceptionalism anymore. And so um, it's hard, I think, to have a conversation with young voters who don't necessarily even even think in those terms. They see the U.S., China, Russia as just countries. They've lived in a relatively peaceful age because the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, quite frankly, did not touch a lot of society. And so in part, I think they're waking up to uh, from the sort of postmodern slumber that constitutes the post-Cold War era. But a lot of them have been acculturated in it. And so reemphasizing or or bringing out the point that uh, America is a force for good in the world, which I think is true, but also that American engagement of the world is important for their own prosperity and peace is kind of at the core of what I think foreign, foreign policy does and why it matters. That's not a really satisfying answer, but I think um, that's probably how I would put it. The GOP primary vo voter is skews a little bit older, um, in particular in a place like Iowa. Uh, so I think some of the older tropes will still resonate to a certain extent. But by and large, yeah, I think uh, trying to trying to bridge or straddle or however you want to put it, this younger voting base that is just growing up in a fundamentally different world than the older one, which still, re I think, remembers the Cold War, realizes we've probably gone off track, but still thinks America uh, can do good and needs to now get into shape, build up its muscle mass so that it can uh, it can win this competition. That, I think, is really the art of being a presidential candidate. And, uh, and if you can surf those waves, then you can potentially win. Well said. Well, Peter, you've 
mentioned and we've kind of alluded to a more of a decent amount of your writing and research at Hudson. Does anything particularly come to mind that listeners should um, check out of yours you've written recently? Well, I, maybe one thing that might be interesting is we put out a Ukraine fact sheet, um, which I was thinking of earlier when you're, you're asking what matters for candidates. We did it hooked to the August recess because a big supplemental request is coming down the pike and now has been already reported on. And so if you go to Hudson.org and uh, we have a Europe and Eurasia Center or my expert page, you can find that fact sheet there and it lays out what we're getting for our money, why it matters, and um, and hopefully that can yeah, put some facts on the table that are persuasive. Great. Peter, thank you for joining us on Arsenal of Democracy. Thanks and congrats on the new show. Thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast. We'll be back with weekly episodes.